Hi, welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a discussion episode between me and John. How's it going, John? Pretty good, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about today, including the new Red Dead Redemption trailer, the new Assassin's Creed movie trailer. Uh, but I wanted to start out by talking about a game that I've just started playing called Mafia 3, uh, which is published by 2K Games and developed by Hangar 13. Uh, this game is set in a fictionalized version of New Orleans called New Bordeaux in 1968. And I wanted to bring up this game not only because it's a historical video game, but also because of some of the interesting things it does with its NPCs. So for most of the game, uh, the player character, Lincoln Clay, is really just on this very cliched, traditional, pulpy revenge story that doesn't have anything to do with history. Uh, but the context of the game is set very much in the historical record of the time period. So there's a lot of discussion of the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive, uh, discussion of the Prague Spring, uh, discussion of the American Civil Rights Movement. But all of this kind of historical heavy lifting is done by NPCs. So that could be somebody talking on the in-game radio station, or it could be somebody just uh, having a conversation on the street. Uh, and because the game is so buggy and janky, uh, it's very often the case that these NPCs are simply declaring their feelings on the Vietnam War to themselves oh, no. on a street corner. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really an interesting thing because the main game itself really doesn't have anything to do uh, with the history of the time period. But uh, the NPCs really deliver a lot of really awesome I just keep using the word awesome and really uh, deliver a lot of great historical content on the side. But there's a very good chance you could miss that because given the fact that this is kind of a, a GTA style open world, you're very often likely to run over an NPC on the side of the street mm -hmm. uh, simply by accident. Uh, or you could end up killing them in a shootout. There were some instances where I had uh, an NPC talking about uh, the star trek episode in which kirk kisses lahura and it was in the midst of this firefight that i was having with local mafia <laughs> members and the wow. npcs that were delivering that talk about star trek ended up getting shot so i didn't get to hear the end of it oh what if they just talk trek for like the entire game that'd be fantastic it uh, would be great um but again it's this weird thing where there is uh, not much to do with history in the main storyline but the context of the game is just drenched with historical detail and a lot of it is really pretty accurate um i did the recording for history respond episode with uh professor leonard moore the ut austin and he wrote a book called black rage in new orleans which is all about the civil rights movement uh police brutality uh, in new orleans during the 50s 60s and 70s and he had this section in there where he was talking in detail about how it was really religious leaders in New Orleans who were responsible for pushing back against police brutality during this era. And one of the tactics they used was to try to push for the inclusion of black police officers on the NOPD. And this idea is translated actually into Mafia 3, where your uh, protagonist has an ally named uh, Father James, the local Catholic priest. And at one point, they mentioned that Father James was arrested by the New Orleans Police Department while he was protesting for the inclusion of black police officers on the force. And I told Leonard Moore about this, and he said that somebody on the development team must have read his book. 
kind of in summation, I would say that this is a game that has a lot of problems with regards to its gameplay, has a lot of problems with its main storyline. It feels very much like an open world game that was made for, I don't know, five, six years ago. Uh, in terms of how it plays, it plays very much like a Saints Row 3 uh, mm. or something like that, or maybe even GTA 4. Uh, but in terms of its use of history, I think it's really pretty sophisticated and very impressive, so long as you don't accidentally murder the NPCs on the side of the road. <laughs> well, it sounds exciting, you know, Bob, and I've been following your tweets about the game as you're playing as well. Um, you know, so Lincoln Clay, do they talk much about the draft in particular, in that particular, because, you know, does Muhammad Ali come up? This is... I say this because we've actually been discussing it in my classroom recently, this idea of a draft lottery being introduced to actually try and um, alleviate some pretty significant racial and socioeconomic disparities in who was actually going to Vietnam. So does your player character, is he confronted with that or do you interact with that in any way? No, and in fact, this is one of the big criticisms I have of the game. Um, you know, They make a big deal at the very beginning about Lincoln Clay being uh, a Vietnam War veteran. He's in the war from... I think essentially 65 to 67 are the years of his war service. Uh, and uh, the only kind of time they bring up this war service is with reference to how good he is at killing people. Uh, but of course, as you probably know, and as most of our audience would know, that you know the armed services, particularly during Vietnam, uh, was often the site of some horrific racism uh, and mm -hmm. some enduring segregation. Now, of course, you know, outwardly, uh, the U.S. military would state, well, we had desegregated in the late 1940s. We are, in fact, mostly progressive with these issues. Uh, but it was during 1968 in particular where a group of African-American Vietnam War soldiers came out and stated that these problems hadn't been solved. And you see a lot of the problems related to that racism and segregation uh, beginning to uh, rear its ugly head in the early 1970s. And this happens most famously in 1973 in New Orleans, where you have a Vietnam-era military veteran named Mark Essex, African-American who was in the Navy, uh, go on a shooting spree uh, in downtown New Orleans at the top of the uh, Howard Johnson Hotel. He ended up killing nine people, including five police officers. Uh, and, you know, those kind of instances... They remind people, obviously, of uh, recent events in Dallas and Baton Rouge. Uh, but also, uh, you know, it's kind of remarkable that that history is there. And yet Lincoln Clay seems to have, have uh, you know, no problems with his military service. And in fact, uh, the, you know, the rare times they bring up his war service is almost uh, always in reference to his CIA buddy uh, named mm -hmm. John Donovan, who's a white uh, CIA officer, and they seem to get along fantastically. <laughs> so there's almost no reference of Vietnam. There's almost no reference of his war record. Uh, and I think it really paints this inaccurate depiction of, you know, what most colored soldiers, what their experience was like uh, during that era in the U.S. military. Yeah, in, in exactly the terminology of the time. Yes, right? like exactly. Exactly how they're talking exactly. about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that fits into a very interesting kind of issue of this disconnect that people talk about with the GTA and GTA style games. I don't recall if it was GTA 4 or San Andreas. I remember years ago, it might have been the Giant Bomb Guys or someone like that talking about there being a server where you basically agreed to follow the rules, including 
up to stopping at red lights and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you could role play as like a cop who pulls you over for, for running the red light and everything. And, um, it's, it might be it was idle thumbs. It's not fair to say they were laughing at it per se, but they were just kind of talking about how almost how bizarre this is. But in turn, it's funny. It's a funny thing that we don't consider the GTA style games to be bizarre. Like you're saying, you'll you know, he, I guess the routine runs, the program runs, so the guy basically starts talking about Star Trek in the middle of a gunfight or something. Um, <laughs> but it sounds encouraging. It sounds like that despite that, you come away from it. You at least came away from it with a fairly positive view. Of how it, it's it's engaging yeah, with history. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, if I was talking to a general gaming audience, uh, this would be a game that I would not recommend uh, because the gameplay, uh, the kind of look of the game, the graphics, looks very much like something you'd see in an open world game about six six years ago or so. But for this audience, for the history respawn audience, I'd say that this game is definitely worth taking a look at, especially if you can get the game, say, for like forty dollars on sale maybe over the christmas break it's definitely one worth checking out because i think it does so many interesting things with that particular context i think it really captures the sensibility of the age and also i think it's got an amazing soundtrack uh, a lot of that soundtrack doesn't show up on videos online because of uh, you know it's licensed audio but the soundtrack is just absolutely amazing it's got uh, otis redding it's got credence uh, it's got some Rolling Stone. Uh, it's got some uh, select cuts from Aretha Franklin. I mean, it's just really a remarkable soundtrack, and it really adds a lot to the feel, the authenticity uh, of the game's history. I love that the game exists. I mean, I think there's when you have the GTA games getting so popular, they effectively create the genre. Um, I'm totally fine with the idea of there being, you know, this is a game, this is a type of game. It's like a wrapper almost in terms of we just put our content into it and then it works, which is kind of what Mafia 3 is. Like, let's just use this basic model of a driving shooting game to tell a story about 1960s New Orleans. Sleeping Dogs, which was the Hong Kong set, GTA clone, does a similar thing. Yes, it's a GTA game, but just by the fact of putting it in Hong Kong, for me at least, made it interesting. And it reminds me of years ago when Red Dead Redemption came out and Bob, you and I talking about it, just kind of saying, God... I'd love to just see them take this engine and just keep making games in different historical settings that are basically the same game, and I'd be fine with it. So, in that sense, Mafia Three sounds like a, a a big a big positive for me, you know. Yeah, I mean, it takes that GTA style of open world and it elevates it using the history. It makes it feel like it has a purpose, rather than just being a mindless murder simulator. Now, I, I say <laughs> that, of course. Uh, with the full knowledge that most of the game is just a mindless murder simulator. I mean, I'd say that uh, 98% of the missions you go on are simply a, a version of go to the spot on the map, kill everybody there and the mission's over. <laughs> oh right. dear. So, uh, and those, and those are the main story missions. Those are the side missions. Those are just about every mission. But if you, you take a moment to get out of your car and walk around the town, uh, or just ride around listening to the radio, you'll get a lot of historical knowledge that way. But if you play it like just any other GTA game, you're not going to get any of that knowledge because you're going to be too busy, you know, worrying about headshotting uh, seven or eight mafiosos in this one location and then moving on to the next one. No, I've been tempted. I, you're actually making me want to buy it more now. So that's good. If, I, if I'm in any way indicative of the History Respond audience, you've just done a service, I think. <laughs> awesome great 
Uh, well, moving on past Mafia 3, I wanted to go into discussing this new trailer for Red Dead Redemption. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, I think it's called, right? That's right. There's been a little bit of a kerfuffle over why is it Red Dead Redemption 2, when in theory Red Dead Redemption was itself a sequel. But thankfully, the majority of the human race has decided they don't care about that. And I'm okay <laughs> with it. I, I really don't care. Uh, so, yeah, the the trailer debuted last Friday uh, after some buildup online. There was kind of a... Uh, some viral marketing going on from Rockstar. And then finally they came out with this, uh, I think it's just over a minute long trailer. And most of it is, it's kind of like a, a, a series of landscape portraits. <laughs> uh, there's, <laughs> there's hardly any uh, character animation. Most of it's just, uh, you know, pictures of uh, uh, river deltas and, uh, you know, grain fields and then Buffalo with trains. Uh, there's a sequence where it shows some oil fields. Uh, and in general, it shows a lot less developed landscape than what you saw in Red Dead Redemption, which I don't know how you feel about it, John. But it makes me think that this game is a prequel. Yeah, you know, we were saying that before recording, and I hadn't quite thought of that until you mentioned it. But I'd actually forgotten comparatively how late Red Dead Redemption was set. Yeah. If you follow me. 1911. You know I mean? Yeah. Right. I mean, I there is this, oh, it's a cowboy game. And obviously it's much more than that. It's one of the better games made of that era, I think. Fantastic, fantastic game. Um, but you forget that it's set right before World War One, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so I hadn't thought about it, Bob, until you said it. But yeah, I would think it's it's a prequel for sure. I really liked the um, showing of the of of you know basically look at this beautiful world we've built. Part of it makes me feel that they're proud enough they've built it. They want to show it off, which is a good sign. It's a sign that perhaps. I don't know, maybe the topography is going to play into things a little bit. Um, maybe not to the way they do in Civilization VI, which just came out, but in the sense that thematically, maybe, I, I kind of got this sense, and maybe it's just a coincidence, but maybe they're trying to set a tone for what this game is about, this idea of kind of the untouched West or the being gradually developed West. And, you know, baseball playoffs are on, and I'm watching a lot of baseball right now, and there's something very American about celebrating that particularly a particularly American strain of the bucolic, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Pastoral I'm, past. Exactly. And I mean, I'm, I'm maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it just plays off kind of unspoken assumptions of that pastoral past more than it's trying to contribute to it. We'll see when the game comes out. But um, funnily enough, in the first 40 seconds of the trailer where essentially nothing happens were easily the more exciting part of the trailer for me. Um, <laughs> seeing the, sh- the shop front, the countryside, the train going through the land, I was just like, oh, I want to just, I want to play this game immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in the, I think it's uh, some of the press releases subsequent to that from Rockstar, it's stated that the game is going to take place in the American heartland. It doesn't mm. say the American West. It says the American heartland, which makes me think that the game setting, it might include areas that were in Red Dead Redemption. But if it's set in the heartland, it makes you think, well, maybe the frontier hasn't moved that far west yet. And also given the fact that there's so much undeveloped land shown in the trailer makes me think that they're kind of moving the game's story a bit further into the past, maybe the 1870s, mm-hmm. 1880s, something like that. Um, you know, because uh, with uh, Red Dead Redemption, like you said, it's set in 1911. You have automobiles in that mm-hmm. game. Uh, you have more modern weaponry. 
and you don't see any of that kind of stuff in this trailer. You know, there is some weapons, there are some uh, vehicles, but none of them are what you would might consider something from the 20th century. So I think it looks like this game is a prequel. I don't know if it's going to include the same characters, John Marston and company, but regardless, I think it's it definitely sets a a tone and i think you know like you said that it, it kind of gives off a, a certain message as to what it's going to focus on with showing this landscape rather than showing these you know gun battles or you know showing uh whatever else red dead redemption was known for mm-hmm. and the heartland comment is definitely exciting as well because it, you know we do tend to jump to this back to the future three assumption of the west do you know what i mean like everyone's in san francisco already you know uh everyone's out there in california so i'd be quite intrigued to see if they're going to try and mess around with that i mean i'm not sure bob you're the uh american out of the two of us you would know get to have a better sense of this um where is the frontier by the 1860s 1870s how far west are they getting at that point well so by the 1860s certainly by the civil war you've got a lot of people in california in the far west uh, right. primarily because of the gold rush and starting in 1849 going through the 1850s so very big population out there but in between california and say i don't know kansas there isn't mm-hmm. a lot of people uh you know you've got some people in places like santa fe salt lake city uh, but otherwise, a lot of that territory, particularly up north into Wyoming, uh, into Montana, uh, and then down also uh, into areas of Arizona and New Mexico, outside of Santa Fe, uh, even Colorado, I would say, uh, not very big populations. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, still a lot of um, territory that is not yet settled or territory that is settled, settled by other people, uh, particularly Native Americans. So... You know, there's still a lot of ruggedness to those territories, but I'd say the further west you go, the more civilization you're going to see, primarily because of the gold rush, but also because of uh, previous uh, Spanish colonization into those territories. But, you know, between California and Kansas, still very, very wild country. Yeah, that sounds really interesting to me, because when I think of Red Dead Redemption, one of the key moments for me personally my my playthrough of that game my first playthrough of it was arriving in mexico and kind of you know the change in music and all these beautiful things that game did but there was this clear you're moving thematically but you're also your characters moving physically down south of the border and i don't know if they want to hit similar beats again but i i'm intrigued by the idea of there being an oppositional force now that drives you up into montana perhaps into the winter or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. That would be exciting. There's nothing in the trailer to imply that. Um, but just from that Heartland comment and your comments there, that something like that would be exciting to me for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that does it for the Red Dead trailer. I guess we'll see what else we can uh, find out about that game in subsequent months. It looks like it's coming out this time next year, I think is what they said. That's what uh, That's what they indicated. So pretty good i think the red dead redemption game is big enough and rockstar big enough that they can drive everyone into a frenzy for about a year yeah pretty good timing (laughs) uh and then also uh some interesting side notes to red dead Uh, if you haven't yet played red dead redemption uh it originally only appeared on xbox 360 and playstation 3 and never came to pc Uh, but if you are interested in playing it on pc you can get a membership to playstation now which is their gaming streaming service. And I think it starts next month. You can play the PlayStation version of Red Dead Redemption on PC 
using the PC app for PlayStation Now. So that will represent the first time that that game has been able to appear on a personal computer, which is, I think, pretty cool. There might be a whole new audience of people who you know haven't yet gotten to that game, which I think came out six years ago. I think it was 2010 was when Redemption came out. At least, yeah, it's a... Uh... It seems like a long time to go without Red Dead Redemption. I mean, I would have bought it on PC well by now. I, The only catch with PlayStation now is you need a PlayStation controller. Um, and the website actually tells you you need a PlayStation 4 controller, but I don't know if that's entirely true. I'm going to test mm. that myself. Because okay. uh, I yeah. look forward to playing Red Dead Redemption on my PC for sure. Yeah. Uh, I just played it again, well, for the History Respawn episode a couple of years ago uh, in order to capture footage. And I still thought it was very effective. I mean, you know, I think in terms of the gameplay, it does feel a little bit old. It feels a little bit like Mafia 3. Again, a game mm. that this came out six <laughs> years ago. Uh, but still a lot of fun. The stories uh, in that game, side stories in particular, are really, really well written. Uh, and I think the main story is very effective. Very emotional, too. Yeah. So we're getting into some open world games, Mafia 3 and uh, Red Dead Redemption, that, you know, kind of have some some heft to them uh which is always good i think for those type of games uh okay so moving on we've also saw last week the release of a new trailer uh for assassin's creed uh, the movie uh, starring uh, michael fassbender uh so john you had a chance to take a look at this what did you think so i'm going to go ahead and use an analogy from our profession here which is i'd often get students who want to write a paper and they want to do a lot of things in the paper. And one of the first things I'll say to them is, I need you to do like two of these things for like what's going to be a 2,000 word paper, a seven page paper, whatever. And that's what this movie feels like to me. So there's two things this, about the movie from the trailers we've seen so far. One, I have no idea how they're going to f- put all this in the animus and outside the animus stuff into one movie and for it to make even a lick of sense. Yeah. There's just too much going on. And that's, this is a conversation I have with students all the time. Like, these are all fantastically cool ideas, but you got to pick a couple of them for this to actually work. And that's what that film feels like to me. And secondly, I could be deeply unfair here, but I can't help but shake the impression that the people making this film have a really cool idea for a sci-fi film and have been asked to make an Assassin's Creed film. Mm, interesting. And that they are struggling with the intellectual property. And, you know, people are going to hold this up as either yet another failure in a video game film or, knock on wood, hopefully, the film that bucked the trend. But I don't think it's an issue that is unique to video games per se. I think that it is a licensing issue in the sense of they're putting in some of the iconography of the games, which in the trailers is some of the trailers' most successful beats, in my opinion. But I also sit there watching it going, I just, I can't help but shake the impression that they're kind of, they're they're taking trappings of the game series and trying to fit it towards something they actually would a movie they would like to make and that's completely grounded in kind of nothing but i think it's it's more a broader problem that creative people would face when being told you have to make this movie i mean that's a very difficult thing to be asked to do well you know yeah i agree with you on that i think in particular what makes me agree with you is this the look of the animus in the game the Mm -hmm. actual physical uh, machine the animus in the trailer is this kind of GLaDOS style armed thing that right, comes down and attaches right. to Fassbender's back and that seems to me like somebody came up with the kernel of a sci-fi 
movie idea or sci-fi novel idea. Mm -hmm. And it started with that image mm -hmm. and you know, it kind of just went from there. And I think, like you said, they, they maybe took that idea from some other IP, some other story and tried to fit it into Assassin's Creed. Now, I think one of the interesting things that stood out to me in this uh, story uh, or in this uh, trailer, I should say, uh, was the fact that they actually equipped him with the blades in real life and that right. it was almost like he was playing an uh, a uh, altered reality version of real life that was also in the animus so for instance he said at one point in the trailer he felt like he had just stabbed somebody with his uh, arm blades so mm -hmm. i think there's some interesting things going on there because essentially when you are in the animus in the games you are in a suspended state physically Whereas it looks like in this movie, you will actually be mimicking the real life movements in the past uh, that mm -hmm. your, you know, that your uh, you know, historical ancestor carried out. So I think that's it's interesting. I don't know how that's actually going to work in reality. Uh, well, in in the reality of this movie, <laughs> I, I think that could run into some odd things, uh, but. I was encouraged, though. It looks like uh, the cast is pretty good. I, I think I saw Jeremy Irons is in it. Yes, and then, I saw uh, too. And then Michael K. Williams uh, yeah. from The Wire and elsewhere, Boardwalk Empire as well, is also in it. So that's that's encouraging. But, you know, it does look like I think you said a couple episodes ago that uh, Marion Cotard looks like she's, you know, <laughs> she's yeah. asleep. It looks like she's in the animus. Uh, she looks embarrassed animation. to be there. Yeah. She looks like she's acting underwater. Um, right. Yeah. So that doesn't look very good. But, uh, you know, maybe that'll be the only sore point in this whole movie. Well, we won't know until we see it, but it comes out pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a great cast. I agree completely. I think, you know, the trailer obviously is showing, um, you know, topless fastbender with a bow and arrow um, attacking people. So perhaps they have this sense of, that's a good call that it might be an augmented reality type immersion type thing so that when he starts pulling off the three point landings and all this kind of stuff in real life, it won't seem incredibly stupid because uh, you got to get it all done in two hours. You know, it's not like video yeah. games where you've invested 25 hours Well, you can do it in real life now. Yeah, OK, I'll go with that. They've been hinting at it for the last 20 hours of gameplay, so I'm OK with it versus in a film where you're, you're trying to make these shortcuts. But but part of me, again, is just the most exciting part of the trailers for me. Uh, much like the game, funnily enough, is the actual, you know, historically set time period and what's happening there. Um, mm -hmm. That intrigues me. Now, it's not perfect either. I, I, there's something inherently goofy about the Assassin's Creed fictional universe, which we may as well just accept. It's a bit silly sometimes. And if anything, I think people who enjoy the later games lean into some of the pulp and some of the silly stuff, mm -hmm. which is which is totally fine. Um, I don't really care about michael kenneth williams helping michael fassbender um break out of future prison or whatever <laughs> like i just don't really care and i can just i can already you make, see you make him sound like a serial killer stating his <laughs> full name like that <laughs> i just i think it's such an awesome name i just it's just, uh... just great i just i just love this idea it's very nearly three first names as one name it's just one s away <laughs> it's such a cool name um but I, and you can already see, you know, movie ends with them discovering, oh, no, we're in space. Oh, no, we're on the edge of an island somewhere. And then after the credits, you know, he's in future, future Cleveland. I don't know. It's just 
I mean, I, I really would like to be wrong and um, I would like my skepticism to be utterly unfair. Um, but there's there's a lot going on in, in the trailer. Yeah. yeah, I think, like you said, it might be a little bit too much for one movie. But uh, I'm interested to see it. You know, I, I think it's fascinating that we have so much recent adaptation of video games mm-hmm. into other mediums. And, you know, I think that that is a... That's a good trend in the sense that if you are a fan of video games, you want more people to get involved with video games. And I think you do that partly mm-hmm. by introducing the stories into other mediums. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think it can only be a good thing. It's only a sign of, you know, kind of forward movement with video games. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's also worrying that this could be an absolute terrible movie. And, you know, but, you know, who's it really going to hurt? I mean, it might hurt Ubisoft, but, uh, you know those Assassin's Creed games; they still make a lot of money. So I, I, it's it it can only be interesting. I think. You see, I have a question for you, Bob. Actually, because I'm curious to hear how you think this could actually create a split audience. And I want to explain really quickly what I mean by Ooh. that, Ooh. Uh, which is that video game movies pretty much so far have been miserable failures or not that miserable as failures, kind of a thing. But the Assassin's Creed series is really popular. I mean that's 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 facetious, but like that's facile, but that that's that's a fact. Anecdotally speaking, completely of my own experience, when I bring up games in classrooms, when I have my video game class, students come in who play Assassin's Creed and otherwise aren't really video game people. Um, and I think the Assassin's Creed series has successfully garnered a certain kind of cachet, or 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 people are aware of it and people aren't dismissive of it. And so I just wonder to what extent. And I don't know if this is true, but if the ga- if the film is made a certain way, could we see a large group of people, particularly younger um, film fans, who really like this film and think that it successfully did what they wanted it to do as an Assassin's Creed movie, and others who aren't invested in the games saying it's terrible? In a in a way that would be more fundamental and have a bit more um, a bit more meat on both sides of the argument than, for example, someone who really loves the Doom movie because they like the Doom games. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So you're trying to say that it'll create an audience which likes the movies but not the games? Well, e- well, I didn't even think that's I guess that's a third constituency. So I guess I was thinking of people who are familiar with the games who feel that the movie is something they're happy with and is a valuable addition versus people who just don't care about the games and think that it's bad and I guess a third constituency is maybe people who know nothing about the games would like the movie. I guess what I'm thinking of is if if you look at the Resident Evil games, there's a certain kind of person one of whom may or may not be in this podcast, maybe speaking right now, who, <laughs> who likes the Resident Evil movies and is complete. And this is a, this is a synthesis of lots of things. I like B movies. Um, I'm forgiving of silly genre, straight to DVD movies, and I'm I'm just this ridiculous Resident Evil mark. Like I just love Resident Evil games, um, and so therefore those movies work for me. But I'm kind of justifying them because they're a bit dumb. I just wonder to what extent the Assassin's Creed movie could be a more elevated example of that, where people who are Assassin's Creed's fans have a more convincing argument that it should be taken as as a almost as a positive entry to the Assassin's Creed canon, which is a video game medium mostly, rather than any kind of broader film canon. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I'm kind of trying to make heads or tails of your uh, question. There. Oh, I'm going to edit this whole thing. But... Out. Shit. <laughs> No, I think it's fine. I think I think mostly I'm just struggling with all the things going on there. But I mean, I think that it 
I think most gamers will enjoy just to see Assassin's Creed adapted into a different medium. I don't think mm-hmm. that they're going to feel too bad if the movie is bad or feel too great if the movie's great. I think it does have the chance to maybe pull in people who are not familiar with the games uh, and you know maybe bring in people the same way that you see with the Marvel movies bringing people towards comic books or The mm-hmm. Walking yeah. Dead you know tv show bringing people towards uh that graphic novel series so i think in that respect that that's a possibility um you know as far as people watching this and you know kind of turning into a fan of the movies rather than the games i think that that's kind of a little bit more difficult i mean i think you definitely see that with game of thrones but Mm -hmm. you know the potential for this to actually turn into a movie franchise i think is very thin so i think the best you can hope for at least if you're you know ubisoft or the film creators is that uh, you know this will make enough money on its own and then maybe also draw people towards the video game um the video game series uh so also this week uh we've got battlefield one was released uh, civ six was released also uh i haven't gotten to play those games yet uh i've actually ordered a copy of Civ 6 for myself and for John. So that'll be coming in this week. Uh, and then Battlefield 1, I think so far, has gotten some good reviews. I haven't really read too much about it. I kind of want to maintain my suspense. But, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to playing that and definitely going to cover it for History Respawn as well. And then, John, you're going to cover Civ 6 uh, for the episode That's right. in December. So I think that'll give you plenty of plenty of time to kind of dive into that game, which I'm sure you'll be playing for dozens and dozens of hours i mean i'm kind of also trying to stay away from too many reviews of civ 6 and everything else but the comment i've seen and some of the things i have read are pretty glowing for civ 6 yeah. like there are people yeah. out there saying this is the best civ game yeah i was not expecting to hear that being said about civ 6 i mean it looked great it's civilization's been around so long when 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 people say this could be the best one you have to pay attention to that yeah yeah definitely um, so I figured we would just wrap up by kind of talking about some other things that we've been doing, some of the games we've been playing. So, John, why don't you start us out? What have you been up to besides historical video games? Well, I have. Um, it's kind of a historical video game and kind of not. Uh, as anyone who knows me will know, I'm a huge fan of the British Empire and all things British culture prior to 1950. Um, (laughs) so i've been immersing myself in victorian influenced genre fiction um specifically two things uh the showtime show penny dreadful starring eva green and an absolutely wonderful timothy dalton yeah and um sunless sea which is a video game which is connected to the online in-browser game fawn london which is set in a fictional London that has fallen underneath the surface of the earth and is inhabited by um, kind of people who have died but are still walking around and have their own little city. Um, as I discovered last night, just around the corner from Fallen London, you actually have a puppet state of hell, which was very cool, um, a massive geode occupied by the Navy, and just this kind of um, very playful but kind of very gothic and horror infused interpretation of victorian london but underground and and with monsters um and it's a wonderful coincidence that it kind of aligns with what penny dreadful kind of is because penny dreadful is a similar idea which is um 
kind of the basic concept of a mashup of like mashing up lots of figures from different classical pieces of fiction. But both of these things, both the TV show and the game, are are investing very heavily in and trading very largely on this Victorian concept. So to use a kind of a goofy example, speaking of my uh, feelings about, you know, how we look at this part of the world, one of the problems you always have when talking about Victorian Britain is we're always watching these wealthy people hang out. Um, and there's not a lot of, you don't really see the regular poor schmucks unless they're dying of a horrible disease or something like that. Um, and so there's this moment in Penny Dreadful where Dorian Gray, of all people, shows up to take Eva Green's character out for the day and they just hang around doing nothing all day. And it just really wound me up because that's just a classic example of how we talk about the Victorian period. Rich people enjoying the fruits of the labors of all these people who haven't read Karl Marx yet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, Sunless Sea is a little bit different. You're you're literally the captain of this of a, of a steamship puffing around discovering this kind of this world. So that's what I've been doing. And it's been a lot of fun. It's kind of been linked to this historical stuff, but um, it's a rare aligning of genre and uh, thematic concepts in, in my TV watching and my game playing, which has been fun. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We, my wife and I also picked up uh, season one of Penny Dreadful and we enjoyed that. Timothy Dalton, like you said, is excellent. And I think some of the other mm-hmm. casting choices are really good. I feel surprised that I can say now that I kind of like Josh Hartnett. Me too. My <laughs> exact reaction to Penny Dreadful. Yes. He's yeah. very good in Penny Dreadful. Yeah. Yeah. So how far are you into it, Bob? Uh, so we finished at the, first season we haven't gone back to it yet we've picked up okay. watching westworld now so that's kind of taken over uh, our tv viewing but uh we do hope to go back to penny dreadful i think that the the characters in there are great i think that the main storyline at least in the first season wasn't very strong but the side stories the kind of mm-hmm. vignettes uh throughout the show are really you know great they're kind of dripping with uh, you know, these kind of playing around with uh, famous Victorian fiction, you know, from mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde and Charles Dickens, and Conan Doyle and, uh, you know, the rest of them. So I think, you know, the show has got a lot to recommend it. Um, you know, if you like uh, period dramas, if you like uh, kind of gothic uh, macabre tales, then I would definitely check it out. Yeah, I felt with I won't talk about seasons two or three because I don't want to will ruin it for you, Bob. And if people are listening and are thinking about taking this show up, I'm not really ruining anything for season one either, but um, there's a little bit of unevenness, I guess, to season one here and there. Um, but I think that's kind of symptomatic of television more broadly at this point. I, I feel like every TV show I watch now is just anticipating your patience, which is good in a lot of ways, but sometimes I get a bit frustrated where it's like, well, this episode was kind of fun, but I don't really know what happened in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, that's mitigated when you have Eva Green is, you know, completely, um, she's integral to what the show does well. Timothy Dalton is wonderful. And Josh Hartnett, like, astonishingly, I, I literally kind of said, I guess he's the actor to pretend isn't in the show for the whole run. But the opposite is true. He's actually a big part of what makes the show successful. Awesome. Um, I'm so glad it's very cool. And I love that kind of stuff. I mean, I know, obviously, History Respond is evident of that, but... I, I love these kind of not even just counterfactual, but intentionally fanciful reinterpretations of history are always great mm-hmm. and bringing literature and stuff. It works pretty well. Yeah. So uh, for myself, I've been, well, I've been playing a lot of mafia three, uh, but I've also been doing a little bit of reading. I just started uh, a book that I'm kind of ashamed to admit I hadn't read before, but uh, Margaret Atwood's the handmaiden's tale, uh, which I think came out in 85, 86, 
mm-hmm. something like that. And it's uh, this dystopian future novel in which uh, the main character is living in a society in which the United States was taken over by a uh, theocracy, a theocratic government, uh, basically led by uh, 1980s, 1970s uh, televangelists. Uh, so very repressive society, and a lot of it is focused on uh, kind of critiquing gender politics in the Western world, but in particular, uh, the United States. And I think it's a book that's really well written. I, I am a little bit sad that so much of the narrative is delivered in internal monologue rather than in dialogue. And I think it kind of makes the story, it feels it feels very tedious to read at mm. points, even though the writing is very good. Have you have you read that book? Um. I love Margaret Atwood. She's a wonderful writer. And The Handmaid's Tale has been sitting on, on one of my bookshelves for about four years. And I haven't read it. And I don't know why. And I've started <laughs> it so many times. Because you'll meet people who've never read anything by Atwood and have said, oh, I've read The Handmaid's Tale. Like, people have read that. Like, it gets assigned in school and stuff now. Yeah. So I would I would love to, to read it. So, But apart from the issue of internal monologue versus dialogue, it is you're enjoying it? I, I am, yeah. I think that the setup, it, it's very much... It's very much of a historical timepiece now, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it came out in the mid-80s when there was a lot of drama, a lot of antagonism over the issue of abortion. And mm-hmm. I would say that there is quite a bit of that still uh, in the United States. But this idea that these kind of uh, conservative uh, Christian right people could somehow take over the government or somehow lead to the end of abortion – I think is a notion that is very much of the 1980s and is not one that would really fly today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in terms of my own uh, kind of memory, my own past, you know, growing up, going to a Baptist academy for high school. I mean, even then in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, there was a sense that abortion was something that had to be accepted. Uh, that you know, there were discussions actually people using birth control. Uh, while at school. So I don't think that this world that Margaret Atwood imagined is really one that could exist or even make sense today. I know a lot of people, you know, uh, they assign this as reading in class uh, in high schools around the country or in uh, college courses. And, you know, I'd gotten the sense from, you know, kind of following people online who have read this book kind of saying, well, this is something that could still happen. It's like, no, mm. I feel like in the 80s, that might have been an idea. Uh, but now it just seems very much uh, it's, a, it's a good way to get kind of, you know, like I talk about with Mafia 3, it's a good way to get a sensibility of the mm-hmm. age rather than to think about this as something that could still happen. But uh I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to, you know, talk in specifics about the books, especially since you haven't read it, John. But I would say that the writing, this is the first Margaret Atwood book that I've read. And I just say the writing is just absolutely phenomenal. It's just that she's great. I wish there was a bit more dialogue because, I mean, it's very ponderous reading somebody's monologue. And the book does jump around a lot with timelines. So it does get a little bit exhausting to try to follow that. And I'd say I have the problem. I have a problem with the structure of the book rather than the writing of the book. That mm-hmm. makes sense. It does make sense. And you should definitely try the Mad Adam trilogy after this. Um, R.X. Okay. and Craig in particular is very good. Atwood, she's a wonderful writer because she's lovely and clear and she doesn't digress a lot. And there's nothing wrong with digressing, but every reader has their own preferences. But I think she's a wonderful writer. Um, 
And it's an interesting point you make in the 1980s as well, Bob, because I feel like, you know, ERA had been blocked, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, you had a lot of people who maybe felt that Reagan and, and the people, one of the sections of Reagan's very broad coalition perhaps was kind of, you know, it was a sign of the end times or something. Um, and you could even go more cynical perhaps and say, well, the televangelists are so mainstream now, you know, like Joel Osteen is, you know, a big deal. And I don't see him being mocked. In, in, you know what yeah. I mean? Like he's not—he's not a figure of fun for many people. But um, uh, yeah. although that ignores the high—that ignores the high tide, of course, of the of the of the late '80s stuff. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Bill. Oh no, I was going to say. I mean, you know, Joel Osteen is very popular, but at the same time, he's not as much as part of the national conversation as somebody like Billy Graham was back in the '70s or the '80s. I mean, I feel like in a way that that conservative Christian movement had its high moment. Mm-hmm. in the 80s and early 90s and it's very much fallen out of the mainstream i mean you see it today in the uh, republican platform for presidency it hardly mentions yes. the evangelicals uh and well the... oh go ahead i'm sorry i'm sorry Bob. but there's a very interesting um article in the washington post a couple of weeks ago talking about generational issues within the evangelical movement for example because there is a real problem when you have at least according to this article older members of the evangelical community saying you know, we have to support this guy who's been pro-life for about five months um, and who's had, you know, he's on his third marriage and he has humiliated his previous wives and has done all these things that we think are terrible, but you need to vote for him for the Supreme Court, etc., etc. And apparently a lot of younger evangelicals are saying, you know, where was his compromise with same-sex marriage and, and these various yeah. issues? Now, I don't want to oversimplify what are very, very complicated questions, um, but it is intriguing. I would agree with you that The Handmaid's Tale, it's not, you know, viable in that sense but it is intriguing to see where that community or those particular political voices go next you know because they're not new in american society either the idea of you know religion playing an important and vocal and overt role in discussion so Mm -hmm. um but all of this is just making me want to read the handmaid's tale if i could say really quickly as well don't ask me where i found the time for all this but i've actually been reading as well gene wolf's the book of the new sun okay and the reason i bring it up actually specifically um, I have read Jingles before. He's a very good sci-fi author. The Book of the New Sun is a four-book series. I'm on the third book. And I'd be very careful here not to spoil what is a very, very interesting book. But uh, at the end of one of the first two books, he basically argues uh, that he is an historian of the future. Mm. And I thought this is a cool thing for us as historians to be thinking about, maybe talk about at a future point. He has lots of words in the book, books that are repurposed uh, words that exist and he's reusing them for something else and in this little appendix at the end of the first book he even says that's what he's doing that he has acquired this knowledge from the future and as an historian of the future he has had to use the best words that he can to explain these things that don't exist um, and I was so tickled by that I'm just so tickled by this idea of an historian of the future um, and just what a kind of a instantly in the same way that reading dune years ago really made me think very actively about my global history course and intersections of different communities and cultures and stuff uh gene wolf's book just throws me for a complete loop in terms of what am i doing as an historian what is the past uh, you know <laughs> yeah yeah actually i used to refer to myself when i was doing my undergraduate thesis as somebody's doing the history of the future because i was looking at you know, kind of these, uh, basically what were 19th, 20th century, early 20th century British novels about uh, future geopolitics, kind of like Tom Clancy novels of the day. And, you know, how all those fears about future wars, future events really kind of reflected the culture uh, at the time period. So 
I think that sounds really interesting. I mean, for me, given that past, I think that, that idea really sounds interesting. I just jotted down the name of that book. Okay, well, I guess that does it for us. What do you think, John? I think so. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm going to go back now and uh, patiently wait for Civilization Six to come in the mail. <laughs> That's my life right now. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> on that note, that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow History Respawn on YouTube just by searching History Respawn. Uh, you can also check us out on our website, historyrespawn.com. Uh, if you really enjoy our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Thank you so much.